Hi, I'm Dan Kurtzke, and if you're wondering where Jim is, I'm going to be flying solo in this short series of episodes covering Green Lantern Mosaic for a couple reasons. You know, one being that I really don't want to do the page-by-page, panel-by-panel thing we usually do. I want to take a broader look at all the issues. And I'd ideally like to keep these fairly short episodes as well, and you know as well as I do that you give me somebody to talk to about this stuff, and I can go on pretty much forever. Um... Also, the way things are at the moment, it's just easier to not have to worry about scheduling with anyone else, so this way I can read and record literally any time I get the chance. Alright, so, I recently completed my collection of the series Green Lantern Mosaic. Uh, This is a Jon Stewart solo book that ran for 18 issues in the early 90s, and I've never actually read any of these issues before. Still, I still haven't, as I talk to you now, I have not read a single one. You may have heard my occasional mentions on the Lantern Cast about how I don't really do back issue diving. Part of that comes from the fact that if I'm going to read a story, I don't want to read part of it and then have to wait God knows how long to finish it because I'm assembling random chapter by random chapter by random chapter over an untold amount of time. In this case, I knew there were only 18 issues of Green Lantern Mosaic, so I wanted to wait for all of them before I started so I can just take in the whole series. And I figured, hey, odds are a lot of our listeners never read this either, so this could be interesting for you guys and provide me with a good excuse to finally dig into this thing. For anyone wondering, a mosaic is basically just a term for a larger picture made out of lots of smaller pieces. You know, in this case, you've got a community of sorts on Oa cobbled together out of chunks of populated areas taken from across the universe, all being forced to coexist or die trying. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> um, Alright, first, first some backstory. So for a time, the Guardians and the Zamrons left the universe to further the species, wink, you know, okay? And before you ask, no, the results of this have never, ever been touched by any writer, which means there could very well be some orphan guardian children floating around out there somewhere. Let's let's get on that, Jeff Johns. Anyway, the guardians left one of their own behind to watch over things. This guardian was often referred to a lot as old-timer, but I think curtain readers will eventually come to know him better by his real name, Appa Aliapsa. And being alone was rough. You know, he's, he'd spent eons with all the other Guardians, now he was truly alone for the very first time in his life. And he couldn't take it. He began kidnapping cities from all over space, bringing them to Oa to keep him company. Because, <laughs> you know, that's the sane thing to do. Um, I should say, there was no Green Lantern Corps right now either. I mean, in, an army that large was deemed too big for a single Guardian to manage. You know, the central battery was depowered since having something like that sitting there with so little protection was way too dangerous. You know, a select few Lanterns still had functioning rings and were able to recruit others one by one if needed. I, I want to say there were like six Green Lanterns at the time. 
So, anyway, so the Lanterns confront Apaliapsa and summon home the rest of the Guardians, and all hell breaks loose until they finally kill the old-timer, but the rest of the Guardians say that they can't send the stolen cities home, that the only way Apaliapsa was able to bring the cities to Oa in the first place was by draining power from planets, and that's too harmful. So the Guardians have to wait until the central battery's power builds up enough to do the job. Until then, Jon Stewart has appointed the Green Lantern of Oa, you know, to watch over all these freaked out people until they can go home. And John sees this as a mix of punishment and a chance for absolution, as he's pretty fresh off the heels of the two biggest tragedies in his life, the destruction of the planet Zanshi and the death of his wife Kat Matui. Uh, he's even got he's even got this little Jetsons like living quarters in the in the desert area between the patchwork sections of assorted cities, so he can he can more or less be equal distance from everybody. So that's how we got here. And before diving right into the series, I wanted to read something of a primer, you know, because this what little I do know about the content of this book, it's a lot more I want to say heady and psychological and metatextual than other Green Lantern series. So I didn't want to just jump in head first. I figured, you know what, let me let me ease in a little bit. So I took a look at Green Lantern numbers 14, 15, 16, and 17 from 1991. Uh, this is the series that would eventually give us Emerald Twilight and then transition into Kyle Rayner's book and then go on until Jeff Johns came into the Green Lantern Rebirth. These are written by Gerard Jones, drawn by M.D. Bright, and inked by Romeo Tangal. Tangal? I don't know how to say his name. The story itself is simply called Mosaic, and it drops us into the life and mind of Jon Stewart as he desperately tries to figure out how the hell to do this job without his own personal demons getting the better of him. Uh, things heat up when some aliens kill a couple of human children, and the rest of the humans on Oa react how you might expect. <laughs> they want revenge in a very black-and-white, us-against-them sort of way. John won't simply obliterate the aliens, thus the majority of the humans brand him an enemy, and the aliens aren't listening to reason either. What's actually really interesting here is that the alien race that started all this trouble absolutely are not evil by any stretch of the imagination. You know, they're expansionists by nature. Every cell in their body, every fiber of their being screams out to keep expanding their society outward more and more and more in concentric circles until the whole planet is part of them. They do so by any means necessary, but they bear no malice or ill will at all towards those they crush in the process. In fact, they don't even truly think thoughts. They're they're empathic, you know, they're they're perceptive to other people's emotions and they feel it's a good thing that other diverse emotional beings can become a part of them. So right from the outset, the bad guys are not the bad guys, and the good guys are not the good guys, because you would assume because in these type of stories, you'll usually get, you know, the evil invading aliens versus the the innocent, somewhat altruistic humans. And that just, that's blatantly not the case here. We, we get gray area from page one. John's struggling to keep the vastly outgunned humans out of harm's way while desperately, you know, like, again, desperately trying to keep the aliens from realizing that their yellow laser weapons can punch through his shields like they aren't even there. He's also doing this on next to no sleep, he's begun hearing voices, and he just keeps pushing himself harder and harder to avoid dealing with his utterly crippling emotional issues that are quickly turning into psychological problems. 
<laughs> one of the very few level-headed humans on the planet, a woman named Rose, uh, she thinks... It's Rose, right? Yeah, Rose. Anyway, she she thinks of John as seeing himself as the kind of person who doesn't quite fit in. You know, like he can be surrounded by friends and yet still feel alone. That line by itself resonated with me. You know, that's very, that's a very common thing. That's a very human thing to feel. Because, you know, eventually everyone you're close to will be at different places in their lives than where you're at. And you you might feel kind of out of sync with everybody. So that was... You know, it was just one line in one panel, but that struck a chord. Uh, something I'm very pleased with in this story is the ring usage. It's a lot more, I want to say, abstract than what we tend to see today, as John doesn't so much make constructs as he affects the environment. You know, the big feat of power in this one is when John lets off a massive burst of green energy that fills the sky, shakes the ground, and forces a network of stone walls to rise up out of the ground, sectioning off every last one of the cities. It's kind of like a like a warped honeycomb almost. It's a, and, and we're talking miles up, miles in every direction, and it's not permanent either. And we're not talking about green construct of walls. We're talking about he is, he is just forcefully molded the ground into these mammoth structures and they're being sustained by his will these aren't permanent he has to exert constant concentration and willpower at all times or the walls will go down that is crazy <laughs> like ugh, i'm not doing the description justice you have to find this issue and look at this and the way the skyburst is inked, you can almost see sporadic framework throughout the sky, which immediately reminded me of the way John's energy manifests as architecture these days. I know that's not what they were actually going for, that the architecture visual angle is a very modern addition to John Stewart's character, but it still it made me think of it. You know, in in addition to all that, you get John teleporting people all over the place with his ring. Something I don't I don't even know if that's been done in the last 10 years in the book, but it's awesome to send people back to their respective cities, to keep them separate, it, even to assemble specific people in one place when he needs to try and have like a little meeting of the minds of like public leaders and stuff. It's, it's good stuff. And there, I mean, there there is a good smattering of, of actual constructs and everything in here too. Like one of my favorite bits in the book is when he he has to separate the humans from the more advanced heavily armed aliens so what does he do he he, he creates a horde of pterodactyls to snatch up the humans and just fly off with them it was it was crazy um they do a really good job here of creating an external conflict that personifies John's internal struggle. They even spell it out for you in case you didn't catch on while reading. You know, the planet itself is kind of like John's head. The factions going nuts with guns and violence are his rage. The walls he built between the cities are the walls inside him that keep the worst of it all buried. The few people on Oa who want peace are his hope. You can even make a correlation to the current mythology, as it's those people's hope for peace that can eventually quell the rage of the others, but hope by itself isn't going to be enough without the willpower John brings to the table. John spends almost all of this story in deep, heavy thought about everything from every angle, what it means, who's right, what should happen next, versus what can happen next. 
until he comes to the realization that it's time to stop overthinking, stop dwelling, and just act. He finally takes charge of the situation and ends the conflict in a swift yet temporary way. The mosaic is basically in the eye of the storm at this point, but they can use that brief reprieve to gather the various community leaders together and begin talking about peace. And that's more or less where the four issues leave us. <laughs> um, it should be noted that John discovers that the Guardians were completely lying about everything. You know, the central battery is already at full power, and it has been for some time. In fact, maintaining the various environments each city needs to survive takes more power than sending them all home would. The Guardians flat admitted to John that they didn't want to waste this opportunity for an experiment. <laughs> What dicks? With more and more planets getting space travel and entering into this intergalactic community, the Guardians wanted to see how this totally random sampling of species from all over the universe would react to being forced to interact and coexist with each other. And the Guardians are content to learn whatever they can, even if everyone in the mosaic kills each other. I have to say, this is probably the most frantic thing I've ever read, and I mean that in a good way. You know, every side in every direction is at each other's throats. The tension keeps building and building and building through the whole thing. And the hero, with the most powerful weapon in the universe on his finger, is all but helpless to do anything about it. it you know, since there's nothing you can do externally to make people stop being afraid and hateful. It's, it's basically a battle against human nature from all sides. There are a lot of layers to this. This is a very smart story, and it makes John a very likable, relatable, human character in a way that I don't think I've seen equaled in a post-Emerald Twilight comic. I obviously think Gerard Jones nailed this, and as I was reading through, I realized that M.D. Bright is the artist my mind always goes to when I think of what, you know, old, in Air Bunnies, Green Lantern comics look like. It's a totally different visual experience from looking at a modern comic book, which is weird, since 1991 doesn't really feel like it's all that far away. But I, I strongly encourage you track down some Green Lantern stuff by this guy, if you haven't seen any already. Um, okay. That was a lot. <laughs> and we haven't even started the series yet. Um, considering how much I unexpectedly got out of these four issues, I may take an issue-by-issue issue approach to this series after all. Um, the original plan was to do what I did here, read a chunk of issues, then talk about them all at once in a broad overall way, but, but if I end up getting this much out of it each time, I may just break it up more. I don't know, I'll, I'll have to see how it goes as I start reading. Alright, in the meantime, if you want to leave any feedback on this episode or on the LanternCast in general. You can email us at LanternCast at gmail.com or I'm Dan at LanternCast.com. Be sure to visit the website LanternCast.com and look for the main show on iTunes. And uh, f uh, f we have other stuff. Facebook, phone... Uh, wait, where, what is our phone number? We have a new phone number. I don't think I ever wrote it down. Uh, I'll have that for next time. And, <laughs> alright, see you guys. Oh, we have a forum on thecomicforums.com. We have a Facebook page. Just search LanternCast. It's, it's great. Go interact with people. And I will talk to you guys next time.